Hi, I'm Andrew McCandless. I'm the principal trumpet of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and the trumpet faculty at the Glenn Gould School at the Royal Conservatory of Music. And you are listening to Talking Blues. We were talking about football before. Um, I know you've lived in places like San Francisco, Buffalo, Dallas. Do you have a favorite team? Oh, I do have a team, uh, but I'm a little ashamed to admit it these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I am a long-time die-hard Cowboys fan. Ooh. Well, I should say long-suffering at this point. Um, did that come from your time at the Dallas Symphony or before that? Way before. Believe it or not, I mean, I don't. I guess it's because they were America's team. But you know, I, I remember watching the Cowboys on Sundays with Roger Staubach. Tony Dorsett and Tom Landry in the hat. And I used to go, at least for two years, I went on Halloween as a Dallas Cowboy and uh, had like a helmet that my mom had painted silver and we cut out a blue star for each side. And that was what I would go on Halloween as. And I, I will never, ever forgive Jackie Smith for as long as I live for dropping that touchdown. <laughs> but but you're still their fan. Yeah, for a huge fan. I mean, I'm upset with Jackie Smith because it cost me a dollar. I had a I had a bet with a friend at school who bet the Steelers would win, and I bet him a dollar, and I did not have a dollar. And then I Jackie Smith taught law, he dropped the ball, and I started crying. I told my dad, and my dad said, "Well, you're in big trouble because I'm not giving you a dollar either." <laughs> it's a disaster. So, when you lived in Dallas, did you get a chance to see many games? I mean, I watched them all. I never went down. I mean, it would like getting a ticket in Dallas at the time was a little bit like getting a Maple Leafs ticket in Toronto. Like it's it was just so expensive and you'd be so high up. And that was before, that was the old Texas stadium. Right. You know, it was, it was before Jerry's world. Now that, that crazy place, <laughs> um, which is amazing. Like it's a beautiful stadium, but no, I never, I never got to go, but I, I love being there. And you know, you, every, you know, it's like being in Toronto and turning on five nanny, the fan, all you hear most of the time is them talking about the Maple Right. In Dallas, all they talked about was the Cowboys. And, uh, but they were, they stunk. They were terrible then. Jerry was in full control and it was a disaster and it was really hard to be a fan. But I don't know. This year, I told a friend just the other day, this year may be the year I give up. And as we're speaking right now, they're getting toasted by the Washington. Yeah, not good. <laughs> no, not good. Although I did not pick the Cowboys in my pool this week. I have a rule now that I will not pick them ever again. Uh, well, at least that's one game that I know every week I'm going to win in the pool. So, um, so you're a sports fan from a young age. When did music come into your life? Uh, so yeah, I'm a huge, huge sports fan. I played a lot of sports when I was a kid growing up, tennis, basketball, baseball. Um, I just loved any sport pretty much. And, uh, music came in. I, I ended up in music in fourth grade in the band class because the teacher, uh, a, a gentleman named, uh, I think it was Robert McDowell. Anyway, Mr. McDowell, he came to my fourth grade class at the beginning of the year. And he said, he, he got up in front of the class no one knew who he was. And he said, who would like to get out of class for two hours a week? And, um, I, he didn't say what it was for, but I didn't care because I thought two hours a week out of class, that ought to be better than being in class. So I signed up for it, not know, not even knowing what it was. And the next week, on like a day, he came and got those of us. We went to this room, and it was the band room. And there were uh, two tables set up, 
and uh, on the tables were instruments. And the first one that I came to was a trumpet. So I, they said, pick up an instrument and go to a seat. So I picked up my trumpet and went to my seat. So is that random? That's how I ended up in music. That's, yeah, I know. It's not a very good story, really. Kind of, wow. Kind of sad. I was just trying to get out of class. Um, Little did I know this was going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So when did the when did the trumpet become a part of you? Uh, definitely that in sixth grade. So I, I kind of stumbled through fourth and fifth grade. I just went to class. That was it. I had to carry my trumpet back and forth. I remember that. They gave you like a rental trumpet. and I would often forget it and then get in trouble. And I wasn't really interested. But in sixth grade, so back then that would have been... I don't know, very late 70s, early 80s, uh, when I was going into sixth grade. I guess I would have been 10. So maybe it was 1980 or 79 or 80. So back then in Louisville, there was still this uh, this busing program, which was to promote ethnic diversity in the school. And so I was sent from a predominantly uh, almost all white neighborhood where I would have gone to a white high school. I was bused to... Uh, a district with a mostly black school. So I would have gone to a school called uh, Western, and instead I got bused to Iroquois Middle School. And um, and just, you know, I saw, I was put in band because I had been in band in grade school. It wasn't like a choice. You, just, you were in it, then you got it. And when I got to Iroquois Middle, I met Mr. Jarrett, who was the band teacher there. And he was, uh, is a really super interesting, nice, lovable black man. And uh, I really never, I'd never seen or talked to anybody like him before. In fact, as we're talking right now, there's a picture up in my studio where I'm sitting and I can, I'm looking at him, a picture of me and him in seventh and eighth grade. And, and I, it's just, it was just such a different thing to be involved or get to know somebody like that. Um, so, okay, this is part of the desegregation, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And I believe it was a federal, I believe it was a federal program, but don't, I mean, I'd say don't quote me. Right. So, podcast, so. <laughs> as, as a young kid growing up in the white section of Louisville, I mean, did you know about segregation? Did you, was, was that even part of your world? Is that, were you aware of any of that? Um, well, I mean, I, yes, I was aware. Certainly I was aware that there were differences. Um, I would say it's it's pretty fair to say that I was brought up not thinking especially high of other ethnicities. And um, it was just, you know, it, it was the way I was raised, the way my parents were raised. Right. And so that I didn't know a whole lot. I didn't have hardly there was maybe one black family that lived within a 10 minute radius of us that I knew. And he went to the same grade school that I went to, but I didn't know him spoke to him much but it was just you just didn't see it so you would only hear things right. and uh, you know sometimes maybe people talking to you but more often it's probably the things you would hear over here uh, that sort of gave you a sense of how people felt about things so that's your only influence that's sort of what you need to do so when I got to Iroquois Middle and Mr. Jarrett was just the polar opposite of that like first of all he was unbelievably cool like just this super cool guy who had, you know, these really colorful suits. I remember he had like these kind of burnt orange suits and, you know, huge collared shirts that he would have unbuttoned to put down like three buttons down. 
he was just like for that time he was so stylish big bell bottoms white shoes it just i don't know like i was blown away and then i got to know him and talk to him in the intermediate band program and he was great he was great he's a trumpet player himself and he used to pick music that we would play that we really related to so i remember playing billy jean by michael jackson and beat it by michael jackson and sea of love which i think was maybe robert plant right i can't remember who that was yeah but we did that kind of music you you, you loved it you loved playing it because you were playing stuff that was current and modern such a it was such a great way to get kids to come to band. Like everybody wanted to play in the band because they were playing, you know, Michael Jackson. How about just other than music? How, what was the experience of going to that school like for you? What did it matter? Cause right. music was the, the thing. Well, it was, it was really different. I mean, it was really different. Um, I liked it. I had friends, uh, you know, cause there were people from my neighborhood that were sent there too. So people that I had grown up with at my elementary school, there was a, you know, a slot that got sent there. And um, so it wasn't, it wasn't bad. You know, it was, I didn't really, I can't say I knew a whole lot, even at, at 10 or nine or 10, you know, I didn't know that much. I guess 10, I would have been 10. Uh, I didn't really know that much about the wide world. So even though it looked very different and felt very different, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a bad experience there. I mean, the only bad experience I really had there was that I just wasn't prepared to go to middle school where you change classes every hour and there was homework and like I wasn't prepared for that. Um, music was great, but I wouldn't say I really got fully bought into it until seventh grade, middle of seventh grade sometime. And what would, and, what would have, what happened that would have got right into it? Oh, well, I just, I got close with Mr. Jarrett. That's what happened. I mean, I, I got to know him better. He started to take an interest in me. Um, he, he, you know, tell it now, I was like as good as Doc 17 in seventh grade. That's not the way it was. But he thought I was very talented. And so he got really interested. And then we just hit it off. Like, I, mean, I don't know. How do you know how those things happen? Just got along really well. Right. We always had things to talk about. He started giving me private lessons. Um, on his own for free. Uh, we, I would just stay after school and in his office and sometimes more than, you know, a couple days a week. And we would work on the trumpet together and then he would drive me home. And he lived, you know, on the complete other side of town. And, you know, it, couldn't, it was really inconvenient for him. But never a word of any complaint. Like he just loved doing it. And we loved being together. And it was just a incredible time like it's incredible and so I got really really interested in it um around that age around seventh grade what an amazing thing to have because I hear so many you know I've talked to so many musicians who who took lessons and hated their teacher and almost gave up the instrument but because of the love of the music they kept going or whatever or you hear the other opposite like yourself where you meet somebody who literally changes your life in music oh yeah I, I kept going because of him like it wasn't, I loved, I mean, maybe it sounds corny. I loved him far way before I loved music. Um, just being around him was what was fun for me. And the fact that we both played trumpet and that was sort of extra fun. I mean, at some point, you know, I probably around, I don't know, eighth grade or something. I started to think, well, actually, you know, I really like trumpet. 
was into music in seventh grade. But just to be more clear, maybe I was more into the idea of getting to hang out with him and do stuff with him. Right. Um, and, and we really got close on a kind of a, a more personal level. Like we would have big conversations, big conversations for seventh grader, and especially for a white kid. Like I, I, I've told this story many times, but I, I think it's worth telling. I, again, I can, we used to go on band trips and we would, the band would go play like at another middle school, not like big trips, but we just play at a different and play our stuff. And then we'd go to lunch and then we'd come home. And um, we always stopped at McDonald's. That was, that was like a big, big deal to stop at McDonald's. And back then, I think my parents would give me like a dollar or two which would be enough for a cheeseburger and a pop and some fries. Right. And, uh, but Mr. Jarrett, because he was the band teacher and he was bringing in like 60 kids into this McDonald's, he would get to eat for free, right? Because they're like, well, you're the teacher and you're bringing all this business so you can have whatever you want. So it started out, he would just get extra stuff <laughs> and, and give it to people. Like most, mostly he'd give it to me. Said, what do you want to eat? I'll get you something. You know, and then he would, I only could get like a couple of little things. <laughs> so we started sitting together and talking and I can remember one, one trip uh, very specifically being kind of a bit confused just because what I heard as a kid growing up where I did, um, I was very confused why he as a black man was so interested in nice to me. And so I just asked him. I said, I don't get it. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm confused. Like, you know, you spend so much time, you're giving me free lessons, you know, you drive me home, we go on these trips. He, he was giving me big solo pieces to play in front of the band. Uh, and, and so I said, I'm just confused by it. And he, you know, he had an interesting way of looking at it that, you know, given current times, I wonder how people would feel about it. But I can, at the time, what he said was, he said, when I look at you, I don't see, I don't see a white kid. I look at you and I see Andy. And he said, when you look at me, I want you to see Mr. Jarrett. And that's all we need to see. That's all we need to talk about. The rest of it is not important to us hmm. because we're seeing each other. We, we don't, what, what does it matter? And, you know, this guy, he can remember, he grew up in Tennessee. He can remember when he had to ride in the back of the bus. He can remember the segregated water fountains, the segregated washrooms. He remembers all that stuff. It happened to him. Right. Like, for me, I, like as I got older and I started to really understand what he said and what he went through, like what his parents went through, um, it was even more amazing that that's how he attempted to live his life, sort of looking at the world that way. And I, I don't think, I mean, I, 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 I've known him forever now, and I, I think he still looks at the world that way with everyone like that's just how he's how he tries to see it it's it's uh for me it was a good lesson no one's perfect i do my very best to to be the way he sort of the example he set for me but uh anyway yeah it was a it was a great lesson what an amazing thing to learn so young yeah yeah i mean because i didn't know i didn't know anything i mean I kind of knew by default things that now I would look back and say that was bad, that was wrong. What I sort of knew just growing up, I would be very unhappy with that idea and completely disagree with some of the things that I knew. 
and some of the views of the, uh, not to generalize, but some views that are held in the spots. Um, well, everywhere, but all, you know, because of the history in the southern United States, it's it might be a little more um, top of mind there. But uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was an incredible lesson. What was I mean, I always learned. I learned more from him about life than I ever. There's no question about that. Was that ever um, difficult in terms of relating to your other friends? Like, did the people around you understand that you had the special bond? Um, you know, I can't say it that I remember it coming up, coming up to me with friends. I mean, it's cer certainly possible that they said things when I wasn't around. Right. Uh, I would say it was more difficult with my parents. Um, you know, that's tough. Like he, he was, Mr. Jarrett was clearly was and still is a father figure right. for me. So I, I mean, I have two little kids now and I wonder how that would make me feel. I can only imagine it. It wasn't always comfortable. I mean, there was a couple of, you know, for one thing, you know, outsider and clearly I'm, I'm treating him as though he's a father figure plus figure plus he's black. And uh, that's very, very different than, than the way it was at my house. For sure. Um, but obviously, other than the special bond that you had, he obviously knew that you were a very talented musician. Well, that's what he said. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he, we, you know, we just, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess I was, I wasn't terrible. Um, I mean, I certainly know people, I know of people and know people who are far more talented than I ever was and better much sooner than me. I mean, I teach kids every year at the Glen Gold School who are so much better than I was at age 18. It's, uh, it's kind of it's comical. They're, they're just so good. And I, I was so clearly not good. But I think, you know, for Louisville, Kentucky, and for, you know, the kind of kids Mr. Jarrett probably mostly dealt with, uh, kids who were just, you know, there to go on a band trip or there to get out of gym or whatever. Sure, I suppose I was probably more talented. And, and but I would I would I would suspect more than anything, it's that I was more into it. Like I love the idea of the trumpet and I love the idea of playing high notes and wanting to play like Doc Severinsen or Nader. And so we really had that in common. I would imagine trumpet is the difficult instrument to play. I mean, I, I presume most instruments are difficult, but for some reason, I think trumpets are really difficult. <laughs> that I, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing about trumpet is that there's the difficulty in trumpet for me is that there is nowhere to hide. Right. You know, if if you're playing trumpet in in a jazz band, in a in a combo, in an orchestra, in a wind ensemble, like everybody hears the trumpet it just you can't really get away from it so there's a lot of hazard involved um the the you're on a you're you know you're often on a tight wire or a high wire without a net because everybody's going to hear it if something goes wrong even if you're playing a mozart symphony and there's almost nothing for you to do if you mess something up everybody can hear it. whereas you know maybe somebody playing in the back of the violin section can miss a few notes and it's not as noticeable or a flute not as um, but yeah, it's a difficult instrument in, in some ways like that. So at what point do you, like I'm skipping around a bit, but at what point do you know and have the confidence that you're not going to hit a bad note? 
You don't. <laughs> no, but you know, you, obviously, you play for many symphony orchestras, and you're a principal at Toronto Symphony. I presume that you're at a level that's pretty high up there. Do you ever hit well, bad notes? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I do. And I could find you like a whole raft of witnesses that would agree with that <laughs> statement. Um, you do miss notes. I mean, I think I think one of the one of the keys to doing what I do is that you have to have a really short. You can't think about it when something goes wrong. And and, you know, I've always if, if I have I mean, one of the, the talents that I do think I have is is ridiculous amount of optimism i was talking to my buddy the other day we were on the golf course and we were talking about practicing and he was saying like if he doesn't get it in the practice room it's not really great every time when he goes to play it on stage he's really worried something will go wrong i can be in the practice room and get it right two out of ten times like a terribly low percentage and when i go on the stage i am certain it's going to go great and then when it doesn't go great because it almost never does. I'm stunned. No one is more surprised than me that that just happened. I'm like, I, I can't believe it. I feel betrayed that something went wrong. And yet I had no reason to believe that because I couldn't do it at home in my practice room. <laughs> and I don't know why. I mean, that's, I think that's probably a good attribute if somebody who's going to play principal rocket. You have to have confidence that it's going to work. I don't know why. I'm kind of the same on the golf course, actually, or anything I do. I went, I went rock climbing just yesterday, yesterday at a rattlesnake point. I haven't been climbing in years. I used to climb a lot and I'm climbing an easy route and I'm sure it's going to go great. And of course it goes bad. And I'm stunned. Like, I can't believe it. I'm saying to the belayer below me, I'm like, I can't believe this happened. He says, you haven't climbed in eight years. What did you think was going to happen? And I thought it was going to be great. I don't Wow. Yeah, I don't know why that is, but that's, that's definitely something that's something that I, I have. For better or worse. So, um, you enjoyed the music that your teacher taught you because it was somewhat contemporary. At what point did classical music become a thing for you, or did jazz come uh, before that? Jazz came before. Okay. It took a long time. I I went through a lot of. Uh, it was a big transformation for me, and took a long time to get there. I mean, Mr. Jarrett and I we did marching band together. Um, we did jazz music together. We worked on high stuff together. We would, you know, find a recording of Doc Seven's playing something and we'd try and figure out how we could play it. That was really, really my focus. And, and even like after I took lessons with him, um, he, I got to a point at some point, maybe in eighth grade, he decided I should get lessons with a professional. He, he said, you know, I can't really teach you anymore. You're, you're a better player than I am. So I need to move. Wow. So he started, he started paying for lessons with a, a, he paid for it out of his own pocket with a, for a, with a grad student. First it was a graduate student at the university of Louisville. And then shortly thereafter, it was with the second trumpet. of Louisville. And, um, you know, I, like it was, even though this, my teacher, then I was still new Mr. Jarrett. Like I was in, I was with him until the end of 10th grade. Right. And, um, you know, he, he, you know, so now I'm with this orchestra teacher, though, an orchestra guy, and I still didn't really get it. Luckily, this teacher was also kind of a jazz player, and he played jazz piano, and we would learn all these standards, like, I can't get started, or Misty, or, you know, things like that. Um, but what really changed it 
was, and when I went to an, an 11th grade, I transferred out of Iroquois High School to um, the Youth Performing Arts School in Louisville. They called it Y-Pass. And that's like a whole other story. Like, I don't know how much you want to go into, but like leaving Iroquois and going to Y-Pass, that was a major big deal for me. But I, I went to Y-Pass and I met a girl who was a violinist. And at the orchestra at the school at Y Pass and played in the youth orchestra and and she really is the one who kind of got me turned turned towards classical music. It was really her. Classical music and trumpet is not a world I'm very familiar with that. And I, I have limited knowledge of classical music. But what was it other than the girl that that <laughs> got you hooked up into classical music and the trumpet? So she um she had gone to Tanglewood uh, music festival okay. in the summer, which is in is in outside of Boston. Right. It's beautiful there, and she had played in the Tanglewood Orchestra, which is for high school kids in North America. It's probably one of the two best high school orchestras you can be in. It's either Tanglewood or the Interlochen Academy Summer Orchestra. Um, and they had played a piece of music by Respighi, Alturo Respighi, called "The Pines of Rome." And the last movement of Pines of Rome, uh, if you listen to it, the ending of it, like the last five minutes of it, is almost like a marching band piece. It's all brass. It's it's so loud and and exciting, and these great lines and these extra brass players. There's three trumpets on stage and two trumpets off stage, and extra horns and extra trombones off stage. Cacophony of sound. And um, she came back that summer after having played this piece with a tape cassette of it, and she played it for me in the car. And I, I probably wore that tape out. I just couldn't stop listening to it because it was like a marching band. The trumpet had such a leading role. It was such exciting music. And you would listen to it. You couldn't help but I couldn't help but get chills from it. And, and I decided pretty much right away then, like, okay, well, wait, that, that I don't have to be in a marching band or a jazz band to get excited about the music. And, and it also seemed kind of cool to be part of something that was like 90 people. Hmm. I think I liked that idea of you have 90 people playing, but the person you can hear the most is the trumpet. <laughs> that, was sort of, that was sort of appealing to me. Uh, the idea that I, I would be the most important out of that many people. Maybe that, I don't know if that's what I actually thought. Now I look back, I think that seems like something I would <laughs> Tell me about the confidence you had in, in your playing and in your music at that point. Uh, well, I, I was, I was, well, I still had that same thing. Like even back then, like I had that kind of un, um, undeserved, <laughs> unwarranted amount of confidence. Uh, I just had it. I don't know why I, I was sure everything was going to work out. I mean, I wonder maybe some of that's just because I had at a pretty young age, I had somebody who just believed in me 1000%. Like he was, Mr. Jarrett was always sure, always sure that I would make it. And he used to joke that, uh, he said, one day you're going to be on the Carson show playing a duet with Doc Samerton. That was like the big joke between us. He would always say, I, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for you to be on the Carson show. Of course, you know, Johnny Carson doesn't have a show now, but right. we, we, I used to watch that. I would watch it at night, hoping they'd let Doc play. They never let Doc play. But ironically, years later, in my very, well, my second orchestral job, I was in the Buffalo Philharmonic, and Doc Severinsen was the pops conductor. Right. And he heard that I had gotten the job. He, he's, he uh, 
called him. He said, oh, so did you hire a new trumpet player? They said, yeah, we hired this young guy. He's like, well, tell that guy uh, I want to play a duet with him. And I'm not making this up. It was unbelievable. He said, I'm going to play a duet with him. And, and I wanted to play a concerto on my concert. So I played, I got off topic here, sorry. No, no, I, I, played, I played the first movement of the Haydn trumpet concerto with Doc conducting. And then we played a duet called Side by Side. And uh, I remember calling Mr. Jarrett afterwards and telling him and uh, <laughs> going through the roof. You could hear him. I was in Buffalo, but I could hear him in Kentucky. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. So, there was a lot of I told you so in that conversation. Okay, so once again, wow. you you know, you obviously were quite extraordinarily talented to do this, to get to that in your like at, at a very young age. Well, just to just to go back a second to, to give it maybe a little more uh, color there. Like, so I, I, I finished his finished Y pass right. in 1988. I graduated high school, which was a minor miracle in itself. And then so I, at this I, point, do you know that this is what you want to do is join an orchestra and be a musician? I knew I wanted to play trumpet and I, I knew I wanted to be an orchestra. I had no idea, no clue how difficult the, those two things were. Like I, I had no understanding of it. I just had this arrogance. Like, oh, well, of course that's what I'm going to do. Why wouldn't I do that? I'm just going to go do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what I wanted to do. Right. Although I didn't, I didn't know what you needed to do to get there. I would say, like, I was still fairly, you know, you know, uh, Mr. Jarrett was a great guy and a great trumpet teacher, and a great musician, but he had gone to Tennessee State, and uh, you know, he. He didn't have a serious music background. Like he, he didn't know anything about orchestras or what. It, he didn't know what it took. So I had never been educated that way. Right. And even my other teachers in high school, it never really came up. Like I mean, I was good for Louisville. That's sort of how I always thought of it. But well, I'm pretty good for around here. But one thing that did give me a little bit of confidence was uh, I got into that Tanglewood Orchestra that my girlfriend had been in. And so they only take four players from all of the U.S. Or actually, I guess it's worldwide, but probably back then it was mostly you players. So do you audition pretty, for this? Yeah, you auditioned for it. So I auditioned at my high school. They came to to Louisville. That was like one audition they didn't look. The one they didn't Louisville was at my high school. And so I auditioned and, and I got in. So that made me feel a little bit confident. And along with getting in there, I got a scholarship to go to Boston University because BU was tied to Tanglewood. Right. So if you're in the Tanglewood Orchestra, then you can get a scholarship to BU. So that's where I went to school for a year. Um, but I hated it there. And I didn't really, again, I was like when I went to middle school, I, I was unprepared. When I went to university, I was completely unprepared. So I was 17 when I left home because I have a November birthday. So I was always you know, younger in the class. So I went to BU when I was 17. My girlfriend went to Eastman which I realized after I got to Boston, what I really should have done is gone to Eastman. Right. Um, so I ended up transferring to Eastman. And all this is just to give you a little bit of idea about talent or whatever. So I got to Eastman and I quickly realized, I okay, well, I'm not very good. Because I started hearing all these other trumpet players around me. And Eastman at the time, um, if you wanted to be a professional trumpet player, that's where you went. Uh, the teachers there were the best. They had the best students. The students always won. Like it was just the place to go. And um, so when I got there, I realized really quickly 
I didn't really, I wasn't really as good as I thought I was. Um, and my reaction to that, I think, was to not take the trumpet seriously at all. Which is something I still see. You know, you still you you'll still see students who will put in sixty percent of the work, and when it doesn't work out, later they'll say, "Well, you know, I tried, but it didn't work out." Right. If if you put in a hundred percent of the work and you fail, that's a lot worse. That feels worse because you you think to yourself, "I tried absolutely as hard as I could, and I still wasn't good enough." So I think for me, I was kind of just saying, "Well, I'll only work a little bit, and if it doesn't work out, I'll do something else." What 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 would that something else have been? Oh, I have no idea. Okay. No, I didn't. I had no other plans. I mean, I, I didn't. I just knew that, you know, I wasn't as good as other people, and I didn't really know how to deal with that or how to get as good at the time. And so I just sort of, I had a really, really great first semester at Eastman. I had so much fun, but I, there wasn't a whole lot of trumpet. Anymore. And um, so my last lesson before Christmas, my teacher at the time at Eastman, her name was Barbara Butler. Uh, she teaches at Rice now. See, I came to my last lesson before the break, and she said, you know, I've been watching you this semester. Um, I don't think you're very serious about this. I don't really need you here. Um, if, you, if this is what you're going to do, then I don't want you to come back. So either pull it together or don't step foot in this. We're not, this isn't what this school is all about. And, uh, and I went home, and I really, I actually believe, I really had to think about it. Like, okay, well, wait. What do I want to do? And so when I came back, I was the most committed I've ever been in my life about anything. I worked really hard at all of it. Can you just so, tell me this thought, thought process? Did you just, I mean, is it as simple as somebody talked to me and I better get my act together if I'm going to pursue this? So what else went through your head to get to that point? I think it was, I mean, I think it was as simple as her saying, pull it together or I'm kicking you out. Right. And, and when I got home and I started thinking, well, what else would I do? I realized that there weren't very many options. And most of them probably involved moving back to Louisville and moving in with my parents. And I, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I mean, they're great, but no thanks. Okay. Like, I wanted out. I, I wanted out of Louisville. I wanted to do my own thing. I mean, like, I, I imagine many people, now that I look back on it, Louisville's pretty good. Like, I don't have any complaints. It's a nice town. And, but at the time, it just seemed like I just couldn't do that anymore. Um, just a silly question, but was there any point that you thought, well, maybe I'll be a trumpet player for um, a jazz band instead or for a rock band? Or was there any other musical options? No, and I, I have to admit, by that point, I had started to figure out the financial side. And, you know, I know incredible trumpet players in town. Steve McDade, uh, Jason Logue these, you know, really good, good players. And it's just, jazz is just a tough way to make a living. Yeah. It's just hard. It, it's it's day-to-day, gig-to-gig, throwing in some teaching here. Uh, it used to be, you know, back before I got to Toronto in the 70s and 80s, you could make a huge living just being a recording person in Toronto. That's all dried up. So I kind of knew back then, like, it's a lot harder. Like, if you get a job in an orchestra and you get tenure then you're, you have some financial security there. You have a pension, you'll have, you know, a base for which to teach and do other gigs. And plus, I, by then I really had fallen in love with orchestra music, with like the great trumpet parts, the Mahler symphony, an exhibition, 
Strauss or, you know, I just, I loved that kind of idea of soaring above the orchestra. And that's really, really what I wanted. But I also knew that, that um, while it's a great life and it's incredible music, more difficult to make it as a jazz musician. I, I, at least that was my perception. Right. But, and, but you know, I had, I, I would, I would, I had grown up fairly, um, like, you know, I wasn't, we weren't broke. I ate, I had clothes often used, like we did not have a lot of money. My dad worked really hard. There were four of us. My mom worked really hard taking care of us. So I was of the mindset that I wanted to really succeed, really succeed. So, you know, I was thinking of a, a big orchestra job, playing principal in a big orchestra where I was, you know, more settled financially than what I had had. But that too is not an easy thing, right? Because you were saying the other day, basically you could go to a, an audition and you're competing against 120 other players. Yeah, but see, this is where the stupid confidence comes in. Like, I never, I, you know, my Barbara Butler, who's, you know, a close friend of mine, we still talk about it. She still says she just does not understand how I didn't understand how hard it was. Like, I, I you know, I, I just, I just always assumed that it would be fine. And, and I, I was lucky. It was. I mean, after I came back after that Christmas break and I decided to work really, really hard, um, I did that for about a year. And then in November of the following school year, there was an audition for the Savannah Symphony in Georgia. And I went down and I won. See, I, I find school. that amazing because at the age of 20, now you're the principal trumpet in that symphony. Well, yeah. So I was I was the co-principal. Co-principal, okay. Uh, it was, yeah, that's okay. I just, in case Ed Poon ever hears this, I don't want to be mad at him. Um, I was the co-principal. It was a six-month contract. Um, so, it was, so one of the things that I had in my favor was that it was only a six-month contract. So not that many people wouldn't you wouldn't draw everybody that you normally would for an audition because a lot of people starting so we auditioned in November and I started January second or something. So that was one thing. Another thing was Savannah at the time paid like four hundred dollars a week for thirty-six weeks a year, so it wasn't very much money. Um, so again, a, 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 a reason that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily come to audition there. So I think when I got that job, there was maybe 20 or 25 people that auditioned. It wasn't a huge group. And, um, and you know, it, and even my, <laughs> my game plan going into that audition was there was a trumpet player who I really loved his playing. His name was Jim Thompson. He played in the Montreal Symphony for years and then Atlanta. And now he's a teacher. And I loved his recordings the old Charles de Trois Montreal recordings. And so I, my game plan going in was to listen to those recordings and try and play it as much like Jim as I could. Like I had no, I had none of my own musical thoughts or ideas. I just thought this guy's really amazing. If I just copy what he does, I have a pretty good chance. And, um, and you know, it worked out. <laughs> it worked out. So what did, it turned out to be a good plan. Right. But what, what did that Plagiarism. What did that <laughs> experience teach you um, the experience of uh, auditioning for the Savannah Symphony at that young age and, and getting it? Well, I think it didn't hurt my, my unwarranted confidence one bit. I can tell you that. Like, I remember thinking, well, this isn't, see, look, I knew this was going to work out. What's the big deal? Uh, I mean, I found out what the big deal was later when I tried to move up in orchestras. But um, I mean, I, I would say it definitely taught me that it's, first of all, it's possible. Secondly, it taught me that there is really something about this whole working really hard thing. Um, 
which is something I, I wouldn't say I ever, you know, it's funny. There was an interview once where they asked Mr. Jared of me and he said, Angie would take his trumpet home every day and he would practice for hours at home. And then they cut to me in the interview and I said, yeah, I never took my trumpet home. It was always my lock, which is true. I never took it home. Um, I felt so bad for him. I, I told him after he heard the interval, I said, I'm going to send you this interview, but listen, can you cut from like minute five to minute seven? I don't want you to hear this part. Um, anyway, so I hadn't ever really worked very hard, I would say. And then that, ex so that was something that I really learned. You have to, you have to grind it out. You know, you have to really grind it out. And I, I am reminded there was a, there's an Eagles documentary it used to be on Netflix. I don't think it's there anymore. Yeah. And they were, they were interviewing Glenn Fry, who said he had an apartment in LA just above Jackson Brown back before they were big. Either of them were big. Right. And he said he would hear Jackson Brown. I don't know if you've heard this, but he would hear Jackson Brown get up in the morning and make a pot of tea. And then the tea the, it would whistle and he'd make his tea and he would go to his piano and he would sit at the piano working on just a measure or two of a song for 30 or 40 minutes. And then he would go back and he would hear the kettle go on again. And he would make another cup of tea and he would go back and he would work on the song for there until that, that glass of tea was gone. And he would do it all day. And Glenn Fry said, and then I realized, oh yeah, I see. It's elbow grease. It's the work. And so if, I, you know, it taught me that it was possible, but it also really taught me that there's something to this working hard thing. Like it, uh, it does, it is worth it. It does work. So when the teacher says, I don't know if I want you to come back and you decide that you're going to work really hard, how difficult was it to apply yourself like that? You know, not surprisingly not difficult. Um, <laughs> my wife and I talk about this all the time, like, you know, because we've got two kids and our son is this, is this wonderful boy, but he's a boy and, you know, he doesn't want to do homework. He doesn't want to read. He wants to ride his trick scooter at the skate park. That's what he wants to do. And that's all he wants to do. And my wife will say, why can't he just buckle down and work? And I say, don't worry, sweetheart. I, I did when I was 19. <laughs> it's going to be fine. You just have to give him time and it will come around. You'll come around to it. You, you can't rush this. You can't rush it. It's uh... So it wasn't hard. It was like a switch. My roommate at the time, who's a, a great friend and a doctor in Boston now, he, he, was, he said he just, when I came back and started working, couldn't figure out what had happened because um, I went from, you know, partying and playing when I had to, to practicing, you know, four hours a day, plus all of my ensembles and lessons and rehearsals and whatever. But I just knew that what I believed was that I had this, she was serious. She was going to throw me out. So that was scary because then I was going to end up back in Louisville, which I didn't want. And I had to trust her that if I just worked, if I worked really, really hard and smart, that I can make it work. And I think the smart thing is super important. Like really so important to practice smart. I, I know people who will spend eight hours a day and get nothing done. You have to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it's going to help you in the future. What are your goals? How are you achieving them? You know, it's, there, it's a process. How do you learn that process? Um, well, I, 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 it's tough. I mean, I think for me, it was, I had this great teacher in Barbara. I had, I had, so I had that. Right. She was great on the technical side and showing me the direction I needed to go. 
And then I had, you know, the love of music really instilled in me by Mr. Jarrett. And uh, so between those two things, I had the, sort of the, the really desire to keep going at it, to really like do the work. And then I had a, a pretty, pretty good plan that she would help me with on a weekly basis. I mean, I think, I think now, I mean, my, my poor long suffering students would all tell you is there's like one thing does Andrew say all the time, they would say, he says, you know, the most important thing you have to do is learn how to teach yourself. Right. That's, that's like vital in everything, but especially music because you're spending hours a day in the practice room by yourself. And then you're seeing your teacher for a week, an hour a week or an hour and a half. Glenn Gould, you see me for an hour and a half a week. I can't, in an hour and a half, I, I don't know what you've done during the week. So all I can do is sort of give you a plan or a roadmap or whatever. Um, you have to follow it and you have to make it fit to what you need. You know, it can't, no plan is perfect. I can tell them all the stuff to do in the world, but it may not work for them. If they can't figure that out, then they're wasting time every week, which is, you know, that's, that's a lot of time to waste. For sure. Now, after the six-month contract at Savannah, um, you go on to play for Kansas City, Buffalo, San Francisco, Dallas, various places. How does mm -hmm. that, how do you, how does how do you navigate that? Like, what happens? Do you say after Savannah, this is where I want to go? Like, how how do you decide on your next symphony to audition for? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in Savannah, I, it was a six month contract. When it ended, they offered me. They said, you know, we're going to make Ed the full time principal, and we are we'll offer you the second trumpet. Actually, and, it's um, a silly question, but can you just define or explain? Yeah. The difference? Because principal, I just yeah. assume that anytime there's a feature, then the principal will get it. But is it more than that? It's it's a more it's a little more than that. I mean, it depends on the piece, but yeah, predominantly the first trumpet would play the more melodic lines in the trumpet section. And and the first trumpet would play more likely the big melodic lines in the brass section. Um, the horn would have quite a few too. Right. Uh, so between the trumpet and the horn, that would be sometimes this trombone, but the trumpet is not leading the brass section, but so so often on the top of the voicing and you know the top of the, the higher notes that it it sort of often comes that way, where the trumpet is leading. But is um, it more than second, musical? Like, is your responsibility as a principal trumpet? Like, do you head the trumpet section? Are you? Do the oh, other trumpet people listen to you? <laughs> oh, I have to listen to you. <laughs> is there other things that that? You know, only the principal get together to talk about whatever. Like, is it more than just the music thing? It is a little more than the music thing. Like, I would be, you know, ultimately, I'm in charge of how the trumpets sound. So if there's, if we're having intonation problems and we're not in tune, that's something that I would want to try and fix. If we're not together rhythmically, I would want to fix that. If I have a musical idea that I really want to get across, then I have to talk to the section about it. Now, I... I don't believe in dictating that kind of thing. So if I'm talking to the section, I mean, I'll always say something like, hey, you know, we're out of tune on this chord. Can we just try that? I don't tell them what I think is wrong. I like for us to come together as a group with a decision or a solution to the problem. Even if there's something I want to do musically, I'll say, hey, guys, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think? Right. Can we try it? Um, but yeah, ultimately I'm in charge of that. I'm also sort of in charge of who plays what. 
So on any given week, uh, I do the assignments. But even that, I try to do as collaboratively as possible. Um, but is that totally the decision within the trumpets, or does the conductor get involved in that? Um, sometimes the conductor would get involved. I've been really lucky in Toronto that they've, you know, I've asked for the ability to do it ourselves, and they've let it. Right. Um, which I think is is better if we if we can work it out on our own. Um, I mean, I suppose if there was a huge trumpet feature and I just said, well, I'm not going to play it, the conductor would probably have a problem with it because that's my job. Right. I'm supposed to do that. But uh, I don't do that. I mean, I do try and spread it around. I do want people to feel valued and get to play as many good parts as they can. One thing that I do that I think is maybe a little unusual is that I make a point every year of playing all four parts. So I, I'll play, you know, second on maybe a kid's show or fourth trumpet on a pop show or third trumpet on on something else and let the other guys, those who want to give them a chance to play some bird. Um, in Toronto, we have four trumpets. So we have two principals. I'm the principal and then we have the associate principal and we split up the first parts, although I play the bigger parts. And then we have two utility trumpets who play the other section parts. And in Toronto, one of his utility players in, in particular loves to play first and he's an excellent player. I try to find times every year that he can play some first and I'll move down and play in section. Because I think it's really important, A, that I know, I remember what they're doing, that their job down there is, you know, they don't get applause for it. They don't get a solo bow for it, but it's really important and really hard. And also, I want them to see that I'm willing to do everything that they're doing, right. that, that I don't put myself on some pedestal or whatever. But it is, yeah, there's more responsibility for it, for, for the overall product. Okay, so sorry to interrupt. So... How no, does great. one decide to go to the next level or to the next symphony? Right. So when I left Savannah, I didn't want to play second. I knew that. So I went back to school because I still had, I was only in, I was only at Eastman a year and a half at that point and only in school a total of two and a half years, I think, something like that. So I went back to Eastman to finish my degree. And that's that year there was the audition in Buffalo for a one-year principal trumpet. And um, so I went for I went and auditioned for that, and there was about maybe seventy players at that audition, and I won. And uh, so I left school again. <laughs> I was in school about I don't know three months, and then I left again, uh, and played that year in Buffalo. But it was again, it was a one year contract. So the question, like, do you how do you decide where you want to go? Really, you go where the music is, where the job is, I should say. Right. Okay. So. Is this now the second audition you went to, or had you gone to many others and Buffalo was the second one you got? I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but it was the second one. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's pretty uh, incredible. What do you think? It well, I was, uh, uh, I, don't know, I was lucky. Yeah, I got lucky. You know, you, you, I had a good day. They liked the way I played. I don't know. But, I mean, but I worked really hard. Right. But. And I'm, I'm sure everybody else did too. But what do you think it was about you that they, I mean, is there a way to know why they might have picked you other than it was a good day and you were lucky? Like, uh, you... No, I, I don't. I, you know, I, you, you will hear things sometimes. Like, I, I like to tell this story about my colleague, Gord Wolf, who plays in the Toronto Symphony. He's a trombone player. And when he auditioned, uh, he was in the second round of his audition. There, were, there ended up being three rounds. He was in the second round, and he played um, this trombone solo from Mahler's Third Symphony. It's a huge trombone solo. And I was sitting next to the music director, Yoko Pekka Saraste, at the time, who was Finnish. 
and, and very, a man of very few words. And Gord finished playing the Mahler three excerpt and Yuka leaned over to me and said, well, this is over. And, and there were still people left to play. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't over, but for Yuka, it was over because that one thing was enough that to make, he just, he loved it. He loved it so much that he was done. So you hear that sometimes, like when I got the job in Buffalo, they commented after the a piece of, of uh, some, something I played from a Mahler symphony or the post-horn trumpet solo, they really loved it. And so that was an exciting factor. Like they just thought that was really nice. So that's one of the reasons I got the job. I mean, I'm not sure, it's hard to say. I know that, you know, the kind of preparation that I tried to, tried to do back when I auditioned and what I try and teach my students now is that you, you leave no door open behind you. You know, you make sure that your rhythm is really immaculate, that your intonation is really great, that your sound is good, that your musical ideas, regardless of anyone that they are like, they're so compelling that you could say, well, I didn't really like it, but I definitely know why they did it. Right. So I think in terms of preparing, it's, you know, if you have all of those things, then you at least make it so they have to have a conversation. About it. Sometimes the conversation goes your way, and sometimes it doesn't. And um, in my first few auditions, it, it did. But but I worked hard. Like, I, I wouldn't say that, that I just, I guess I got lucky because they liked it, but but I definitely worked hard right. for it. So do you always pick the piece that you present or do they ever tell you, we want you to audition with this piece? No, they send you a list of pieces. Okay. Um, the, you know, for Buffalo, I think there were 30 pieces that you had to, to know. And then they pick whatever they want to hear and you play it. Oh, at that point, they say, do this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's the way it always is. It's, it's like it's like the worst pop quiz ever given. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you've got 35 pieces in an audition list and, you know, literally hundreds of things they could ask from it, you have to be really prepared. And I would presume that takes a long time to prepare yourself to learn that many pieces. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that was that you know, can be that that's one of the things that makes it hard to succeed early is that, you know, you haven't had a chance to play the pieces. So you're learning everything out of context right. and for the first time. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that makes it really difficult. I mean, my, I always um, would prepare for an audition. It took me about two months to get ready for an audition. And um, I would listen to lots of recordings and pick the things I liked and write down the things that I did and didn't like and the tempos. And I had a whole journal and I was, I was like a battle plan. Um, and I guess that's, that's all part of that turning the corner in Eastman when I decided to come back and really be dedicated. Um, I knew I had to do it smart. Like I said, I had to be really intelligent about what I was doing, why I was doing it. And so, so yeah. have, did you ever fail an audition? Oh yeah. Yeah. Several times. I think I, I counted it up once. I think in the end, I ended up taking about 30 auditions and winning about 10. So it's a pretty good percentage. I would say. Yeah. But if you've, if you had like the first two auditions and you got the job in both of those, um, obviously it does wonders for your confidence, but um, what does it feel like when you don't get it? Uh, not good. Really not very no, I good. Imagine. I mean, it would be difficult. Yeah, it was terrible. I, I so Buffalo was a one-year position, and I played that. And the, the end of that year, 
the principal trumpet who had taken a leave of absence had said they weren't coming back. So Buffalo had said, okay, you can, we want you to stay for another year. And then at the last minute, this person changed their minds. And I remember the executive director, we had just played a pops concert at a park and he came running across the car, the, the uh, parking area and said, Hey, I just heard uh, this person's going to come back to the job. You don't have a job now. And a week later, there was an audition in Kansas city. And so I'd have just, cause I had like done a lot of stupid stuff. Like I bought a car, I had payments, right. I had bills. I had no money. If I lost Buffalo, I didn't, I was going to go back to school. I didn't have any job. So, so I went to Kansas city and auditioned and I got that job. So that was the third audition I took. Um, but then when I was in Kansas city, things kind of got off the rails a bit. I was playing third and assistant principal trumpet. I didn't play that often. I just got out of sync and I started going to auditions and not even getting out of the first round. So you would spend $500 on a plane ticket to fly to wherever, Montreal, New York, Atlanta, whatever. And you'd play for 15 minutes or 10 minutes and they'd say, thank you very much. And you'd go home. That was it. And they don't tell uh, you anything other than that. No, although that's one of my, that's one something I've always done is I always follow up. I always ask the personnel manager to get notes from the committee you know, I give them my number and I ask them, they can tell me what I did wrong because so I could improve. Right. So then I, I try to get my students to do too. Um, sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. Often you knew what you did wrong. Like you just weren't as prepared. You, you whatever it was, like you could hear it when you played it, that that wasn't going to work out. Um, but I had quite a few of those when I was in Kansas City. I was there for two seasons. And um, at the end of the second season, I felt like I had started to go so far backwards. I didn't know how to fix it. Wow. So I quit, I quit Kansas City because I didn't want and I didn't want to get I loved the city and I liked my colleagues, but I didn't want to be there. That wasn't how I saw my career. So, again, with this stupid confidence, like I quit. I just quit. I had resigned and I went back to school for the third time. I went back to Eastman and uh and was prepared to finish my degree. Like I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to get back. I'm going to stay with Barbara. I'm going to get my stuff back together. And then I'm going to go start taking auditions and doing well again. And I think I was at Eastman that time for about six days. And, uh, and then they told me not to come back anymore. <laughs> they were done. They said, we're not holding your scholarship. If you leave this time, it's over. So when I got back, I, I auditioned for a little job in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Harrisburg. And I won that job. And then the next day I got home and Buffalo called and said, well, our principal company has suddenly retired. So we want you to come back and play this job. So I went back to Buffalo. Was there? played, what, drove between Buffalo and Harrisburg. Was there ever a time when, when it was, you were out of work for a long period? Or no. Wow. No, I've been so lucky. I've been, I've been full-time employed by a symphony since I was, 19, 20 years old. Okay, so the other thing is, which is quite obvious, is what an impact your teachers have had on you as a musician. Like it's pretty amazing from a very young age um, how much of an influence they have had for you to become the person you are. When did you become a teacher? Uh, uh, well, re re the first real opportunity I ever had to teach, because it was the first place I ever really stayed for a long time, was in Toronto. Really? Yeah, when I got, I mean, I had taught on and off, and, you know, I would teach one-off lessons, and San Francisco Symphony people would call me and say, 
hey, we're going to this audition. Could you could you come and could I come and play for you? I mean, I guess it's some at that point maybe I had somewhat of a reputation as somebody who did well at auditions. Right. Won more than I lost, and um, so I would teach a lot like that, but uh, not really before I got to Toronto. When I got to Toronto, I was suddenly you know I was approaching the symphony. Uh, the Glenn Gould School was early days in opening, and the dean at the time, Rene Berger, called me in for a meeting, and he said, listen, we want you to be our trumpet teacher. This is the way the school works. For students, you get to pick them. You have full say. This is going to be your thing. But I mean, I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I wanted to do, because there was a huge part of me that wanted to have the chance to give back that. I mean, that sounds a little cheesy, I know, but that's really how I felt. Like, I wanted a chance to have my own students and to teach them what I knew about trumpet, but also teach them what I knew about life and pass on everything I learned from, you know, from Mr. Jarrett. Like, every lesson that I have ever taught at the Glenn Gould School starts the same way. Every lesson. How are you? What do I need to know? How has your week been? Tell me about things. And that doesn't necessarily have to be with music. You know, it's not, I don't mean music at all. Okay. I never mean music. I mean, how are you? Tell me how you are. What's going on in your life? Is there anything that you want to tell me? Anything I can help you with? Like, let's talk about that. And then we'll do music. And um, that's, I've always, that's how I teach. I just think it's, you know, I want these students to succeed first as people and second as musicians. Because, you know, you can be a great musician, and if you're not a successful person, you're not going to have a, it's going to be tough. Right. And that's what Mr. Jarrett always, that's what I always got from him was, how are you, Andy? That's what he would say to me every day. It was not, how's the trumpet? How's your practice? It was, how are you? And uh, so we often have talks, you know, my students and I, sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's 30 minutes. Sometimes we will talk for an hour and a half and not touch our trumpets if that's what's needed. So, but you didn't approach the Glenn Gould to see if you could teach. They approached you based on the fact that they obviously saw you play and, and be, based on what you were doing at the TSO. Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the benefits of being principal trumpet or principal anything. If there's a school in town, there's a decent chance somebody will approach you to be an adjunct teacher. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, people are really great at being a principal musician and also being a teacher and sometimes not. I mean, for me, it was always important. I wanted to teach. I really wanted to teach. Um, so I had always thought about like, how do I want to teach? What do I want to say? What are all these things that I learned from these incredible people I had? And when can I pass that on? So like here in Toronto, because the Glenville School was so new, they didn't have a trumpet teacher. And just by the fact that I got the job and I was the principal trumpet, I was going to be asked. It could have been I don't think it's because necessarily they came and heard me play and liked the playing. I think it, I didn't but they just needed to um, Hopefully it turned out good for everybody, you know. How do you, at what point did you know that you were a good teacher? Oh, I don't know. I don't think you ever know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm always uh, beating myself up over something I said or some idea I had or, you know, and the ideas are ever evolving and, I mean, I hope I'm good. I try hard to be good. I, I really care about the kids. I want them to succeed in whatever they choose to do. 
Um, but it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've had a lot of kids win jobs, so I suppose that's some measure of success. Right. Um, but it's hard to know. I, I'm not very satisfied. I'm probably more satisfied with my playing than I'm my teaching. I think there's always something better I could do. How much does teaching make you a better player? I think it makes a huge difference. Huge difference because you're constantly reinforcing the things you're working on. And, um, you know, I play a lot in my lessons with my students uh, because I think it's really important that they hear what I say and then hear what I do and then have a chance to think about whether that works for them and how it could work for them or why it doesn't work for them. I encourage them to be open-minded and you know listen to everything take in everything and then sort through it and see what works and what doesn't and things that don't work put it on a shelf because someday it might work and you may want to go back to it um, and I, I get all that same benefit when I'm working with my students I hear them play something and I'm like wow how do they do that and so we talk about it we try and I try and figure it out so that I can add that to my own play I think it's it's really good really been good for my client and, and good for my sort of uh, motivation, my soul. Like it's just good to hear these kids who are, who are at the very beginning and they're just working so hard at it. I have a student now who I just think is, or, I mean, I have a lot, I have four students and they're all great. And I love them all, but I have this young one, Laura Curry, who's just starting and, you know, her resolve and her ability to improve is so inspiring. Wow. I just, I, you know, it's, it's really impressive. She had, we just did a master class with a trumpet player from the New York Philharmonic and she played her solo piece and it was a little bit rough. She struggled with it. She was nervous and um, she recovered and it got better and better the more she played, but she sent me a text that night and the text basically said, okay, I'm glad that happened. Like, you're glad that happened? Cause that wasn't very fun, but glad it happened. Because now I know that I have to address it and this is what I'm going to do. And she goes through this litany of things that she's going to work on. She's going to meditate. She's going to run more. She's going to do this. She's got this list. Of things. And that's inspiring. Even if you're, you know, an old has been like me, like you're like, wow, person is so motivating to hear how she's going to attack this problem that she's got. So, I, yeah, I mean, if I, I before we got on the recording, you asked, you know, what I preferred. I, if I had to give up one thing, it would be playing and I would teach. I'd give up the orchestra before I would give up. Wow. The kids are, I mean, they're just incredible. And you have these, in, these relationships you have. And I still have students that I, I talked to that I taught years ago. And, you know, it's, uh, I, as I, you know, the great thing about teaching to me is that you've been working on something with a student for six weeks and it's it's getting better and you can feel them getting closer to getting it like this one thing that they've been working on mm. and the, the day they get it i can almost always tell that they're going to get it like i know they're going to get it before they do and then they get it and the look on their face like oh my god i just did that i got that to work and i knew it was going to happen and but when i see that it did and i hear it and i see how excited they are about it like that's just so exciting to me. That's so inspiring to know how they went. They, if you go back six weeks, the amount of work they did and how they, they stuck to it and they, they continued on this path. And then you, you help them a little bit along the way and you're, you're sort of part of this. 
I had a student who explained it really well once. He said, you know, the thing is, is that when you're practicing yourself, you're too close to see your progress because you're inching along. It's like, it's like a, it's like an inchworm on a huge white sheet of paper. Right. Like you can watch the inchworm and you can see it's getting closer. But as far as the inchworm knows, this paper goes on forever and ever. They can only see themselves moving a little bit at a time. They can't see the big picture. And the student said, you know, you don't, we can't see it. You can see it. So you have that, that overview of what's going on in the trajectory and when we're going to get it. We get it. When we do get it, we're shocked. But I actually knew. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the coolest thing about teaching. But when you teach these very talented musicians at the Glenn Gould School, are you expecting that 100% of the people will wind up making their living as a classical musician? Or does it like does that even come into what you do? Like, I presume a lot of them don't, well, not a lot, but some yeah. don't, um, which doesn't mean, you know, they could pursue other things. And obviously, music has proven that a lot of people who are very successful had that musical discipline when they were younger. But how do you view success in, in terms of being a teacher? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have like the, the raw data, but I would say we're, pat we're probably batting around a 500 in the trumpet studio at Glen Gould, which is a really high percentage wow. of students who end up working and, and maybe even better. I mean, at one point I did do the math and I was around 65%. That was a few years ago, um, maybe five, six years ago. Uh, so we do have a lot, a lot who go on to either have an orchestra job or a freelance career or a teaching job or they play in the service band or whatever. Um, I'm very honest with my students. When they come in, I, I, we go through their first lesson. What are your goals? What do you want to do? And, you know, because Glenn Gould is primarily an orchestral school, most of them, the vast majority will say, well, I want to play in an orchestra. Right. Some of the more bold ones will say, well, I want your job. Uh, <laughs> So I'm not ready to quit quite today, maybe tomorrow. Um, they, so I tell them, this is impossibly difficult. It's really hard, and it's getting harder. And you know the or you know orchestras are struggling a bit, so we don't know how many are going to be there. The competition is stiffer because there's more musicians every year. It gets really hard. So I want you to know that going in, so you know just how hard you're going to have to. And, you know, you're going to need to give 120% effort and you're going to have to be willing at the end of the day to say, I did 120% and it was not good enough, but at least I tried my best. You know, it's, it's, it's possible that it won't work. I don't want them to be, you know, if, I, I, I don't like the way I was. I don't like that I was blindly arrogant and just didn't realize. I want them to know what's I don't want to feed them a false narrative that it's all going to be fine. Don't worry. Just go to school here with me and everything will work out. Right. Um, but, you know, how do I, I, I only measure success with my students on, are they happy, well-adjusted? I don't care what they do. I mean, if they want to play and they succeed at that, obviously I'm thrilled for them and couldn't be prouder. But if they want to, you know, I have a student who's now in, doing an MBA down in Georgia. He was an excellent trumpet player. He just decided he didn't want to do it. I'm so proud of him. Like, really proud. Mm -hmm. He figured out what he wanted. He made his choice. And he's doing something else. Great. He's a happy guy. I mean, I, that's what I want. So if it's trumpet, if it's an orchestra job, that's terrific. If it's not, 
I just want them to be happy. I, I don't, I really don't care what it is. Um, do you get to play, do you play anything other than obviously teaching and, and with the orchestra? Like, do you have a side thing where you play Dixieland or anything? Like, do you do any other kinds of music? Not really. I mean, I, I play the odd, you know, concerto with orchestras and bands and things like that. I have one coming up in November. We're doing a, now it's all virtual, but I'm playing a concerto. Uh, um, I do some brass quintet stuff occasionally, brass on large brass ensemble stuff, where we do different kinds of music. So is that but, difficult uh, when when every time you play, you're basically playing it with an orchestra? Like it's not like you can just call the guys up and say, "Hey, let's jam." <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's it, yes, it is difficult. It's different. It's uh, you know, it's. I mean, I think you know, it's it's. I tell my you know, it's a little bit playing the trumpet is a little bit Groundhog Day. Like you know, you're gonna you're gonna get up and you're gonna work on the same things every day when you're a student, and then when you're not a student, you're gonna get up as a professional and you're gonna work on the same things every day as a professional. It's in the same kind of music because you're playing. You know, you're slightly limited in your repertoire. You know, improvisation. You're not making up your own lines. So there is a sense to that. But I I personally love the pursuit of great playing. You know, if I played a piece, you know, three years ago. I want it to be better this year than it was three years ago. I want to be a better player. Right. Uh, have new ideas or musical ideas that are more interesting and better. I want to technically be better at it. I mean, I like that pursuit now. Um, but I can certainly see, and I know people who find it a little bit monotonous. But I don't. I, I mean, because to me, it's I'm I'm performing for myself and competing with my trumpet. Like I want to just get better at it. Okay, I'm going to have to wrap this up soon, but I, I do want to ask you, I know the other thing that you're involved in is um, raising donations. Well, donation is a big part of classical music and of the Glenn Gould School. And when I heard you talking about it the other day, I, I, and you spoke eloquently about the relationship between the donor and the artist. And it occurred to me that it's different than, than let's say, a jazz musician. Well, maybe not a jazz musician, but let's say a rock musician or certain types of musicians don't have this donor base that they they would deal with. They go out and do a gig. They get paid for that gig. They do another gig. And and the world of classical music and the in the world of the Glenn Gould School, where you rely on donors to continue going. Tell me about that relationship, and and because I find it different than most other music it's totally different it's totally different and you know the interesting thing about it is that if if there's a if there if there's a reason that being having a job in an orchestra is a little is a more solid living than being a jazz freelancer the reason is the philanthropy that's the reason it's the donations because most orchestras get 40 percent of their budget from donations. So if, if you've got that sort of base and you've got an endowment built up and you're, you're pulling from the endowment to create revenue for the budget for the season, that's how you end up with a budget that can, that can hold an orchestra musician, you know, 90 on full-time salaries. Right. Um, whereas you don't, as far as I know, you don't do that so much in the jazz world. It's not like, 
it's not like the Rex is is putting together an endowment fund and a board of directors right. to give money to have a house band and the house band has played a salary to be there, you know, three nights a week playing this music and they have a music director, you know, it's it's not like that. Um, so in a way, is is I would I'm kind of just talking off the cuff here. I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the fact that orchestral music is sort of from way way back with this idea of impresarios and benefactors and all this stuff has developed this culture of boards and philanthropy. It's, it's the, one of the big things that has made it so that orchestras in North America, at least are a little more of a steady job. Um, I love, I love fundraising. I love talking to these people who are supporting the arts. I, I want to know why they support the arts. How did they, how did they get into music? You know, you're talking to some big Bay Street banker who's worth $100 million. How in the world did they end up interested in piano? Mm-hmm. So much so that they would give money to, to support it. Like, I'm so fascinated with how that happened and and why that's so important to them. Uh, and, and, you know, what is it they would like to see so that they would want to do more? What do they what do they like? What do they believe in? What would, what would make them, you know, be more involved with the going Like I found that conversation and that that you know sort of figuring it all out. I just really I love meeting people. And so you meet these people, you learn all these things you could never have dreamed. You know, like people meet me and I get to know them pretty well and eventually it will come out that I'm fascinated with astronomy. Well why? How? I mean that's kind of interesting. Like why is somebody fascinated with the star? Mm-hmm. It's it's the same for me when I'm talking to somebody who is, you know, very successful executive, but I find out, you know, their dad, you know, way back owned a trumpet that his grandfather gave him and when he was a kid he used to play notes on it. That's why they're interested in music. Right. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. That's let me finish with one more question. Um, tell me about your relationship with your trumpet. <laughs> Today it's pretty good. <laughs> it changes. Oh, day to day. Yesterday it was not good. Um, this is a hard lesson for students to learn too. Is that you know you you students you know we all we all just want to figure it out. You know. Yeah. Like, like kind of like being. Gosh, I don't know what's. I don't want to make any career sound easy or simple, but kind of like you know if you were a, a postal worker who had a route. And they'd had this this route for 10 years and they had it figured out. You know, you go, you separate the mail, you drive to your spot, you get out, your mail's organized, you put it in, you know, 14, 15, press 10, 16, and 18. You know, every day, you know. On the trumpet, and I suspect many, especially brass instruments, you pick it up and day to day, you have no idea what's going to happen. And the first, in the first five minutes, you could say, okay, phew, today's okay, or oh my God, what am I going to do today? Um, and and one of the things about being a professional is that on those days where it doesn't work, you have to figure it out. You don't have a choice because you have to still go play. So um, I love trumpet. I've been so lucky, so lucky to have it. And, you know, lucky that I had people in my life like Mr. Jarrett who, who showed me how important and awesome it can be. Um, and, and I love playing. 
but I don't always love my trumpet. That's for sure. That's interesting. Thank you so much for doing this. It was um, I, you know, when I met you a few weeks ago, I thought, here's somebody I want to talk to, and you certainly didn't disappoint. <laughs> well, I'm really glad. It was great to great to talk with you, and I love that you asked questions. You know, I used to get in the same questions, so these were different. This was really interesting. Well, I appreciate this. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. No problem. Anytime. Thank you.